man, it's good to be back up here. Um, I think it's been almost a month, at least. It was before I went to Israel, uh, and now we're back, and uh, didn't know if we would come back to, from Israel, so it's good that we had some other people in the pulpit, just in case, right? Um, and just to let you guys, never mind. Uh, you should go to Israel, though. You should go to Israel. All right, so Matthew chapter 7, we're continuing our, our parables, uh, focus. My mic might be a little bit hot, guys. Could you just tone me down a little bit there? Thank you. We're continuing our, our focus on the parables and, uh, and looking at uh, parables which are a story with a point, a moral, right? The moral to the story. What's, what's the point? And with a parable, you're not going to take it and you're not going to dissect everything, right? We've covered this. You're going to go after one thing. And before we get into the, the text tonight, which is a quasi-parable, it's another little bit of a, a cheater parable that I'm, I'm taking and making a parable, uh, I want us to think about the, the courtroom scene, right? The, the, the courtroom drama maybe that you like to watch, whatever, and it's, it's drawn to the close, and the last thing that an attorney does is he gets up and he, he makes his closing argument, right? He, he doesn't just go, well... You know, you guys saw some evidence, whatever, do what you want with it, right? The closing attorney, whether it's the defense attorney or whether it's the prosecuting attorney, he's going to get up there and he's going to rehash the evidence that he thinks supports his case or his client. And then at the end of that, he's going to call on the jury to make a decision for his client or against the other person, if that's what he's going after. He's not going to leave it up in the air and say, D- just, you know what, D- do what you want to do with it. I-, I think maybe you should do this, but it's really, you guys, whatever you want to do. And when it comes down to it, really all good preaching needs to call for a verdict. It needs to call for a decision to be made. It needs to call for action to be taken. Not just, hey, I- I've spent some time studying this and here it is. And it'd be really neat if you guys took this and took it seriously. But a, a pastor who's opening up God's word, and, and Pastor Mike does this great. He, he always brings the application to bear on our lives when he's preaching God's word. But there's a, a greater preacher than Pastor Mike, greater preacher than, than anybody else that we've ever heard with our own ears, who we get to drop in on in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's Jesus, right? And Jesus also called for a verdict in his preaching. And so as he's coming to the end of this section in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, listen to what we're going to read as we start out tonight. And listen for how Jesus is calling for a verdict, calling for a decision to be made from his audience. Let's pick up together in verse 13. Jesus says this, he says, Enter by the narrow gates, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life or to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. Did you hear the the calls for a verdict, the calls for a decision that Jesus is making here as he brings the Sermon on the Mount to a close? He opens in verses 13 through 14 what we're going to be looking at tonight with two gates, two ways, right? There's the narrow way and the broad way, the narrow path and the the narrow gate and the, the wide gate. And he's calling you to make a decision. Which gate, which path are you going to take? And then there's the the two types of fruit. There's the bad fruit and the good fruit, which are indicative of two types of trees. That there are healthy trees and that there are are bad trees, unhealthy trees. And the implication there for us, right, is we want to be those who are healthy, who are bearing good fruit and not those that are diseased and bearing bad fruit. Those that are going to be taken and, and thrown into the fire. And then there's the the two houses from that parable that we covered a while back in here. There's the house that's built on the rock, and then there's the house that's built on the sand. And the the storms come and beat against those two houses. The same storms beat on those two houses, and the the one stands and the other falls. And the the call there is to have the, the good house, the house founded on the rock. And then when we get underneath that parable, we find out that there's the two responses to the words of Jesus. You can hear the words of Christ and do them, or you can hear the words of Christ and ignore them. And so as Jesus is bringing the Sermon on the Mount to a close, he's driving it home by calling for a response from his audience, calling for action from his hearers, from his listeners. You need to respond to what he is saying. And the same is true for us as we come to this text. And as we approach our particular verses, the the idea of the narrow gate and the wide gate, the idea of the the narrow path and the wide path, I want you to to think about where you're at tonight. For some of you, this is going to deal with where you're at eternally. This is going to be a message that's going to lean into where you're at as far as salvation comes. Are you saved? Are you truly in Christ? Have you repented from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are are you trusting uh, proximity to Jesus to save you? Or do, do you actually have a relationship with him that's going to carry you into eternity? So that's one group that's going to be addressed tonight. The other group is, is going to be those of you who are saved, but your life is, is drifting back onto that broad path. Your life, you, you have a relationship with Jesus, but there are elements of your life where you're still living like the old man. You're still living like you've got one foot in the world. And, and tonight's going to be a call on you to repent from that and to return fully to the narrow gate and the narrow path and make sure that you are, are squarely where Christ wants you tonight. And then the third group that's going to be here tonight are those that their walk with Christ is going well right now. You're thriving in your relationship with Jesus. And that's awesome. And I want to say praise God for that. And this is going to be a reminder for you tonight that you need to persevere because the world that you live in is going to want to continually pull you off that narrow path and away from the narrow gate and beckon you to come and join them on that broad path where there are many that are on their way to destruction. Look again at verses 13 through 14. It says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Jesus' initial call for the verdict, enter, enter, 
enter by the narrow gate. Okay, it's, it's a command, right? This is not a suggestion. This is not a, a, just a statement of fact. This is a call to action. Jesus is telling everybody within earshot and everybody now as a result of the inspiration of God's word, he's telling us as we read these pages, these words, enter by the narrow gates. There's urgency there. There's a, a, a desire there for us to obey the words of Christ. But we have to say, enter what? What are we entering by the narrow gate? We'll go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. It's a, a verse we've referenced a couple times in this series already. It's the way that Jesus introduced the Sermon on the Mount, and now Jesus is concluding the Sermon on the Mount. But listen to the way he introduced it here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, here's the word, enter the kingdom of heaven. So the whole Sermon on the Mount has been framed by this idea of entering heaven. What does it look like to enter heaven? Jesus, how do we enter into eternal life? How can we be in paradise with you? Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount by saying, look, the the way that you need to do that is you need to have a righteousness. You need to have a standard of obedience. You need to have a standard of devotion to the Lord that exceeds the religious superstars of that day. You've got to be holier than the, the guys that you look at right now and you go, wow, those guys have it together. They know the, the, the law backwards and forwards. They're obedient to it. You guys remember Paul from Philippians chapter 3 when he's talking about being a Pharisee? And he's going through his list there and he says, look, as to the law, I was blameless. I was, I was so zealous for being holy that, that I would stand up before you and say, look, those 613 laws that are recorded there in, in the oral law, I was nailing them. I was fully obedient to them. And now you would say, was, was, Saul, or was Paul really truly sinless? No, we, he's not sinless, but, but he's doing it, right? He's living this out. You would look at him and say, man, that guy's got it together. Jesus says, you need to be holier than that. You need a righteousness that's, that's higher than that. And then from there, he walks through the Sermon on the Mount, and he starts to go through all of these different standards of what it looks like to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And he starts out by saying, hey, you know what? You've heard it said you shouldn't commit murder. That's pretty low-hanging fruit for most of us in the room, I would hope and pray, right? If not, and and you're still here, I'd love to hear your story afterwards. Um, Maybe we need to sit down with some police afterwards too. But this is low-hanging fruit. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. Remember, he's saying, hey, your, your standard of righteousness needs to be more than the Pharisees. He opens it up by saying, so don't commit murder. And everybody's patting themselves on the back right there, right? This is like the pop quiz where the first question is just a gimme. And you're going, man, if this is how the rest of this thing's going to be, I'm, 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 this is cake. I'm good. But then he says, but I say to you. And that's when he goes after the heart, remember? And he says, hey, if you've been angry with your brother in your heart, you've committed the same sin as the person that's actually gone physical and murdered somebody. Now, all of a sudden, we're going, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, get out of my kitchen. This is, this is too personal here. Nobody is innocent then. And then he goes to lust, right? And he says, hey, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And there's people there that are going, hey, I'm good. I'm two for, wait a minute. Okay, I'm one for two at least. I I haven't committed adultery, right? But then he says, but I tell you this, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, and ladies, don't think you're off the hook on this. If you've lusted after another person in your heart, you've already done the same thing as committing the physical act of adultery with that person. You see what Jesus is doing here is he's taking the standard of righteousness and he's ratcheting it up. Because what he wants to do is he wants to leave us in tatters and shreds when it comes to our own personal holiness and righteousness. He wants us to, at the end of all of this, say, this is impossible. If this is the standard, 
Nobody can measure up to this. In fact, it's interesting when Luke talks about this, a similar interaction between Jesus and his disciples. He tells this parable and he says, you need to enter by the narrow door while it's still open because eventually the master is going to shut the door and there are going to be many who come and pound on the door and say, let us in. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. So he's, he's kind of melding a couple of things from the Sermon on the Mount here. But what's so interesting is the question that led into that time when he tells that parable is the disciples came up to Jesus and said, man, Jesus, salvation is hard. Are those who are going to be ultimately saved on the last day, are those going to be little? Are those going to be few in number? So they get it, what Jesus is driving at. But now he comes back as he's landing the plane, so to speak, of the Sermon on the Mount. And he he picks up this entrance language again. And he says, again, enter. You want to enter into heaven? You want to get into the kingdom of heaven? Enter by the narrow gates. By the narrow gate. We're going to deal with the narrow gate more in just a minute. But first, I want to focus on the alternative. He says, for the wide gate, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Jesus is warning them here. That's why he says, for, I want you to enter, Jesus says, by the narrow gate. In fact, not only do I want you, I'm commanding you, enter by the narrow gate. Why? Because I'm about to warn you that the alternative is maybe wide and easy to enter into, but its end is destruction. Its end is destruction, and not just destruction as far as annihilation goes. But no, destruction and being cast out into the outer darkness, as he would talk about elsewhere. Into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Into a place where the, the smoke and the torment of those that have rejected Christ go up for all of eternity. What we're talking about here that's at stake is, is heaven and hell. And Jesus says, if you don't enter in through the narrow gate, I'm here to warn you, the gate that's wide and the gate that seems easy here and now on earth, that's the gate that leads to eternal destruction. But it doesn't seem that way, right? Man, the gate is wide and, and and it's easy. It seems like that should be the way that Jesus wants us to go. After all, doesn't he say, any of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me? For my yoke is easy and my my burden is light. But Jesus, now you're telling me I've got to take the hard way instead of the the broad way? There's many that want to take the broad way. And a lot of times we want to take the broad way. I would go to the the Rangers games growing up in in Texas. And um, later on as we were living there and I was going to seminary too. And and we would sit in the the upper deck cheap seats because we were poor seminary students. Um, so we'd sit up there, right? And then after the game, people leave. And when they leave, you can walk out of the, the concourse there into where everybody's leaving. And over here is just a, a mass of people that's trying to get on the escalator, right? And there's just gobs of people there. But if you walk around this way, there's a, a wide ramp that's much easier to get down. And yeah, you've got to walk it, but there's not a lot of people on there. It's nice and open. You can kind of stretch out. And a lot of times you end up beating the people that are waiting for the escalator, right? We, we tend to gravitate towards what's easier for us, what's going to be better for us, what's going to be less opposition for us. But what Jesus is saying and what he's warning us is there's a danger in that mentality when it comes to our relationship with God versus our relationship with the world. The easier life that exists out there, the life that the world applauds, the life that the world holds out to us and says, this is what's desirable. Jesus is telling us that the life that it appears to offer is really no life at all. Our first point tonight is this. You need to see the end of the world's way. 
see the end of the world's way. You're here for about two hours a week, right? Two hours a week. Maybe if if you come to our, our morning services, maybe three hours a week, okay? Anybody know how many hours there are in a given week? Yes, 168. 168. Right? If you're wondering, how did you get that math? 24 times 7. Okay, just do it, right? 168. So if you take the high end of that, you're at church, you're around the, the people of God in, in this context at most three hours a week. That leaves 98% of your life that you're around the world. Even those of you that come from a devout Christian home, there's, there's 98% of your life at least that you're outside the walls of the church, that you're away from the body of Christ as a whole, that you're being exposed to the world and the, the, the paths of the world that they're throwing at you saying, hey, life is to be found here. The world is not going to point you towards the narrow gate. Some of the influences that you're going to encounter in the world, uh, advertisements. How many of those do you see a day or hear on the radio a day or hear if you're too cheap to go Spotify premium and you're just doing Spotify free, right? And that ad comes on and you're like, whoa, what, what, is, what are they talking about? Or you go to see a movie and the previews that come on before the movie or you are driving down the road and you see the billboards in front of you or you're at the airport traveling somewhere and you, you go to pick up a, a magazine to read on the plane and the ads that are in there or you're wherever it is, your, your phone, you're scrolling through Instagram and there's promoted ads all of a sudden or you're on the, the phone looking at Facebook and there's things promoted there or wherever it may be, there's, there's ads everywhere and the ads that are thrown out there, you know what they're not saying Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. They're saying, satisfy yourself. They're saying, you need this. They're saying, this is going to give you purpose and fulfillment and meaning in life. And so here, amass these things, take these things in, love these things. Television, the shows that you watch, think about the plot lines, the storylines in those or the movies that you watch. What are they communicating to you? Even Jim, Jim Caviezel, right, as, as Jesus in the Passion, he's not calling you to the narrow path, the narrow way. There, there's not a lot out there in the world that's going to be pointing you towards Christ. Social media, peers, family, news, whatever those influences are that are in your life, they're not going to be beckoning you towards following Jesus. Now, maybe some of your peers are and some of your family are, but not for everybody in this room. Some of you going home is, is the hardest thing for you because you go home to a family that doesn't know Christ, that doesn't love Jesus, that doesn't value the same things that you value. And you walk into a battle zone when you go home when it comes to your relationship with Christ. And all of that is beckoning you, pulling you over towards the broad path. This is where life is found. Come over here. What's at the core of some of their messages? Let's talk about a few of those things. Number one, how about identity? What the world has to say to you about identity and how identity leads to satisfaction and fulfillment in life. The different types of identity that are at the, the core of a lot of the world's messaging today. Uh, gender is a big one, right? If you're not satisfied with who you are, and gender is fluid. It's what you want to be. It's what makes you happy. And if anybody dares stand up to you and, and call you out on that, well, they're bigoted. They're narrow-minded. They're judgmental, they're homophobic, they're racist, they're whatever it may be. How about race? That's a big identity thing today, isn't it, as well? Economic status. How much cash do you have in the bank? Where do you come from? What's your zip code? What kind of car do you drive? What kind of job are you angling for? Sexual orientation is a big thing in today's culture and society as well. 
Again, when you consider the identity movement and the things that identity is being put forward for, it's, it's again, not calling you to identify as a slave of Jesus Christ. That's not there. They're not calling you to deny yourself when it comes to identity. They're calling you to say, what do you want? And you live out your truth when it comes to your identity. But the problem is with that, and I want to poke some holes in some of these messages that the world is giving you about the broad path. The problem is, is what happens when your identity that the world said, live that out and you're going to find joy and satisfaction there. What happens when that doesn't satisfy? The rates of, of suicide with, with those that have gone through a, a sex change are, are through the roof. Because they come out on the other side and they go, wait a minute, this didn't fulfill me the way I wanted it to. And now my life is destroyed. And so our identity is something that the world throws at us. How about a, a cause? You need a cause to get behind. You want meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment in life. Make sure that you've got a good cause. Social justice. Save the environment. Save the animals. Women's rights. And we could go on and on and on and on and on with all the different causes that are out there. And I'm not saying every single cause that the world has is a bad cause. But I am saying this. It seems that there's never an end to the amount of causes that the world throws at us and offers us. Why? Because new ones keep being added in a quest to find one that's really going to give you satisfaction and meaning in life. But it's never going to be enough. Maybe it's, it's career that the world throws out there and says this is where life is to be found. Jump on the broad path and find the rut of, of being a, a career, of having a, a great career, making a lot of money, being successful. Is that wrong? No, not, not inherently. But if it becomes all-consuming, if that's where you're looking for your reality, if that's where you're looking for your hope, if that's what, where you're looking for life and meaning and satisfaction in life, it, it's, it is wrong. And it's going to leave you despairing. Because the message that the world throws at you is make as much money as you can, as fast as you can, and retire early. But the question that I have to ask in, in response to that is, when is enough enough? You're always going to want more. You guys may remember the actor Robin Williams, right? Robin Williams was an actor who was at the top of his game and, and a, a great, has done a lot of, of wonderful work and great films and played a lot of amazing roles, and yet that wasn't enough to satisfy him. And so even, even when you think of your career, that's not going to be enough for you. Another one that the world throws at us and says, here's where life is to be found on the broad path is through experience. Experience. Make sure that you're traveling. Oh, you're young. Put off marriage. Put off having a family. You need to just travel and explore the world and experience new things. Dating. Date as many people as you can. Don't worry about monogamy. Don't worry about sexual purity. Don't worry about any of those things. Experience everything that you can. Experiment and experience with as many people as you possibly can so that you can find what really satisfies you. And then there's just the, the try new things. Try new things. Go out and do new things. Dare to do something different. You know what? Be unique. March to the beat of your own drum. Forge your own path, which is interesting given that there's many who are trying to forge their own path. Why? Because they're all on the broad path that leads to destruction. I came across an article that was written by some people out of Cal Berkeley this week. And it was talking about this idea of, of young people trying to find purpose and meaning and fulfillment in life. Two instances that I want to call your attention to and read for you in this. First, this lady, she says this. 
Environmental and social justice organizer Jody Sugarman Brosen feels driven to leave the world in a better place than I found it. So there's her purpose. There's her fulfillment. There's her meaning in life. I want to leave the world a better place than I found it. She says this, becoming a mom strengthened that purpose. It's going to be their world and then their kids' world, she says. It definitely influences how I parent, wanting to raise anti-racist, feminist, radical kids who will want to continue the fight and be leaders. Now let's set aside whether or not you like those words that she just labeled she wants to raise her kids at. I, I just have a simple question for her, and that is this. Miss Brosen, what happens if your kids aren't that? Are you going to be satisfied? Or how are you going to know you've done enough to leave the world a better place for your kids? But see, she's chosen to make her entire existence revolve around this idea of leaving the world better than she found it and raising kids who are anti-racist, feminist, radical. Uh, what does that even mean, radical? Uh, kids who want to continue the fight and be leaders. There's another lady, and this one was, was saddening to me. Her name is Amber Cantor, Cantorna. Amber Cantorna. She was raised by purpose-driven parents who were right-wing Christians. I found that, that statement interesting, the way that the author described them. Purpose-driven parents who were right-wing Christians. She says this, My mom had us involved in stuff all the time, all within that conservative Christian bubble. This, faith, or this family and community fueled a strong sense of purpose in Amber. So even that, they're recognizing that there's purpose in the church, purpose in, as they put it, purpose-driven right-wing Christian bubbles. She said this, this is the way that she described the purpose, to be a good Christian and role model, to be a blessing to other people. And then this is the, the author. The trouble is that this underlying purpose involved making other people more like them. You know, making other people more like Jesus, right? I mean, that's what we would say our, our purpose as believers is. But here's Amber's story. When she came out as a lesbian at age 27, Amber's family and community swiftly and suddenly cast her out. Now, I don't know what was involved in that. This is all Berkeley is telling us. That they swiftly and suddenly cast her out. They may have not handled that well. Who knows? But it says this going on. This triggered a deep crisis of purpose. One that she resolved by finding a new faith community. And it goes on to talk about how the old life that she was experiencing was one of exclusion and one of hatred. And, and so she found a new place where she could be accepted for who she was. Do, do you see the, the, the ping pong effect here? The, just the bouncing back and forth until you find what you want and then you kind of settle down there until that no longer satisfies and now you have to go somewhere else? It saddens me for her because she was so close to the real life that was being offered in the, in the real narrow gate, and yet she, she walked away to choose the, the broad path. Jordan Peterson, any of you guys know Jordan Peterson, follow any of his stuff, listen to him. He says this about uh, younger generations and millennials and, and Gen, uh, it's Gen Y, right? Gen Z? Gen, Gen, Gen Z, yeah, Gen Z, whatever. Um, he says this, he says they're, they're looking for meaningful engagement, significance, and responsibility. That that's what their life is, is geared towards. Meaningful engagement, community in other sense, in other words, significance. I want my life to count in responsibility. I want to be able to, to take on responsibility and, and be able to, to carry my weight sooner. See guys, that, these are all examples of the broad path that leads to destruction. They're all different ruts along that path that we can fall into. And that the world is going to stand up and applaud us while we're in these ruts that are on their way towards the end, which is eternal destruction. 
I mean, the, the, these are, it's like we're on a party bus with the world and the party bus is, is careening off of a cliff and the cliff is getting closer and closer and closer and everybody on the bus is singing We Are the Champions by Queen as this thing is plummeting towards its death with no clue that where they are is where they would hate to be if they knew where the, the ultimate direction was, which is why we have to see the end of the world's way. These ruts that we've all once traveled as well at one point in time, the rut of morality. You know what? I need to be good enough to gain acceptance. So I'm going to live my life trying to just be a good person. The rut of significance. You know what? I need to be important enough or successful enough to gain acceptance, to be thought worthy. The rut of purpose. I need to be useful enough to gain acceptance, to find meaning, to find value, to find satisfaction. The rut of comfort. You know what? I just care about being comfortable enough while I'm here. Eat, drink, and be merry. YOLO, right? For tomorrow we die. I know nobody says YOLO anymore, but it fit the context. Pleasure, that rut that says, look, no matter what, I'm going to just find what makes me feel good, and that's what I'm going to live for. I don't care what you think about it. I don't care whether you tell me it's right or wrong. Who are you to tell me what's right or wrong? The rut of status, be as powerful as you can be. Some of you guys, again, here tonight are, are in one of those ruts right now, and you are on that party bus going to, out for that cliff, and you, you have no clue. And my prayer is that tonight you will be awakened to that reality. Some of you guys are, are on the narrow path. You're saved, but you, you're kind of following behind that party bus going, where are you guys going? I, I, I want to come along. You've drifted back into some of these ruts, some of these, these broad path ideals that the world is beckoning to you. And the call on you tonight is to repent and return to the narrow way. Some of you guys tonight are doing, like I said, you're, you're doing well. Your relationship with Christ is going great. You're looking at that bus and you're mourning what's about to happen and you're pleading with them to get off. Let me again encourage you, persevere in that. Keep in mind the end of the world's way. Have your eyes open to what Jesus is telling you right here, that that broad path that the world says there's so much value and significance and meaning and life in, it leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. Answer by the narrow gate. Jesus is not calling you to work harder or to be better, but to change paths. That's our second point tonight. It's this, find life Christ's way. Find life Christ's way. Enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate. It's, a, it's the idea of being constricting, confining. When I was in Jerusalem, uh, I went through a, a, an ancient Canaanite irrigation tunnel. It wasn't Hezekiah's tunnel with the water in it because it was freezing cold. Um, but I went through this, this other tunnel that's there. And in, in this tunnel, I had a, a backpack on. And there were times that, I, I, in fact, right away, I had to take the backpack off to be able to make it through the tunnel because there's times that you had to turn sideways like this to get between the, the openings there. That's the idea here. The idea is, is getting through this narrow gate. It's not just nonchalantly walking through a broad, broad entrance uh, like a giant gate at, at Angel Stadium and just kind of walking through without being mindful that you've entered anything. No, you know you're going into this. You're aware of what you're doing. Or We were in Bethlehem and we went to the church in the nativity where they believed that it was that, that Jesus was born, where Mary and Joseph's uh, the, the cave that they were in uh, was. And so you go to this church and there's on the backside of this church, which is where we entered, there's a tiny door. And when I say tiny, it's really small. I had to bend over at my waist to be able to get in this door. 
And the church designed it intentionally that way because when you entered into the place of the birthplace of our Lord and Savior, they wanted you to stoop. They wanted you to bow going in in reverence. And so that was intentional. But that's the idea of this door. You can't stroll through that door there in that, at that church. If you do, you're going to just run into the wall and fall on your, your face, right? You have to stoop. You have to bend down. You have to be intentional about getting into this narrow opening. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. An intentional leaving, departure from the broad path and entering by the narrow gate. We don't wander through the narrow gate on accident. It's an intentional decision that we make. And I I don't know about you, but I kind of wish it was the other way around. The narrow gate. Not narrow and difficult because Jesus is calling you to work harder. Okay? Let's, Let's make sure that we're clear on that. Not narrow and difficult because he's calling you to to put your efforts forward and and to earn your way through. But narrow and difficult because it's the less obvious, less natural choice. Because you live in a world that's going to be dragging you with everything that it has onto the broad path. And when you're on the broad path, it's going to be doing everything that it can to keep you on the broad path. It's like the the poem, right? I came, was walking in the woods by, I believe T.S. Eliot was the one who wrote it. And he said, I came, the, the path that I was on diverged. And he said, I took the road, what? Less traveled. That's not our natural inclination. We want to stay on the beaten path. We want to stay on the broad area. We want to stay where it's safe in in our minds and comfortable. And what Jesus is calling us to is a life that's anything but safe and comfortable. That's anything but obvious and natural when it comes to the world's ideals of what it looks like to live our lives. Is there an element of difficulty and effort here? Yes, of course there is. Right? And, and that's important to understand as well. That Christianity is not this pie in the sky, life is great, look at me, everything's working out just according to plan kind of religion. That's not what it is. It is going to be hard. It is a battle. And those of you that are, are believers, you know what that battle looks like. To put off sin and to, to put on the things that Christ calls you. To battle for your purity. To, to live not for the world's values, but for the values of a kingdom that's yet to come. That does involve effort. But that's once you're on the gate, once you're on the path, once you're there. See, instead, what Jesus is calling us to when he says, enter the narrow gates, is he's calling us to a life that's contrary to this world. The world says you need power. Christ says you need humility. The world says you need fame. Christ says you need to be a servant, a slave of all. The world says, be inclusive of everybody. Christ says, no, there's an exclusive truth that's out there, and you need to go forth with that exclusive claim of truth to everybody. The world says, live for your happiness. Christ says, no, live for your holiness. The world says, get yours now. Christ says, no, forsake the immediate for the eternal. Even the core of the gospel is contrary to this world. Confess that you are a sinner. Admit that you're helpless to do anything about that. Trust in a dying Savior, a Savior who died for you, who took a penalty that you deserve. By the way, you deserve that penalty, again, because you are a sinner. And God's wrath is being stored up against you. But then not only trust that he died, but trust that 
He rose from the grave three days later, something that no person has ever done ever since or ever before and never will again outside of the the resurrection of our bodies on the last day. Trust in a Savior who died and then walked out of the tomb. Trust in that. And then surrender your life to him, repenting from your sin, turning from your old life, turning from everything that you once valued and lived for and now live with a new purpose for Jesus. That message, the world doesn't say, yeah, that makes sense, do that. That's why when you've shared the gospel with somebody and they've walked away from you, it's because that message to them, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, right, is foolishness according to the world's way, according to the broad path. Confess that you're a sinner? You mean you're, you're trying to tell me there's a universal standard of what's right and wrong, a universal standard of holiness? Who are you to tell me that? Admit that you're helpless? You're trying to tell me I'm not good enough and that I can't be good enough? I'm a good person. Who are you? Trust a dying savior? Aren't saviors supposed to win in the end? Do you even superhero movie? You don't, do you? You don't even know. Trust a resurrecting savior. Hello, ever heard of science? Go hang out in a graveyard. When's the last time somebody got up out of one of those? And surrender your life to him? Man, I don't surrender to anybody. See, that's the broad path looking at the narrow path. It's why the, the gate is narrow. It's not obvious. It's not the way that's natural for us to take. And so Jesus is saying, enter by the narrow path. And he, he says there in the text, he says this. He says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. It's narrow and hard. And those who find it are few. It's narrow and hard because the call to enter by this gate is leave everything behind. Deny yourself. And follow Jesus. But I want to twist your perspective for just a second here. I want you to think of the original audience that Jesus was talking to here again in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.20, again, remember? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes. See, there's, there's a rut that's on the broad path that we haven't yet talked about. And it's a rut that I think is, is probably the, the greatest rut that we tend to fall into. And it's probably the hardest one for you to get yourself out of in order to make sure that you're either entering by the narrow gate for the first time or that you're staying on the narrow path. And here's the rut that I'm talking about. Jesus was talking to an audience who looked at the Pharisees who were teaching, if you want to be accepted by God, you need to obey these standards. You need to be good enough and righteous enough. And by the way, if you're not, we're going to let you know. And you're going to have to wash in the ceremonial cleansing bath, and you're going to have to offer the right sacrifices, and you're going to have to do the right things. And man, don't do this. Don't screw up here. And we're going to add to the law from the Old Testament. And you're going to have 613 commandments that you're going to have to memorize and remember. And you better make sure that you're doing all those well, or else you're going to run the risk of not being acceptable to God. That's the, the crowd on the broad path that Jesus is addressing here. It's not the adulterers. It's not the tax collectors. It's not the sinners. Are, are they on the broad path? Sure they are. But so are the self-righteous. So are the, the ones that are trusting in their own efforts. So are the ones that are thinking, you know what? I, I got the Timothy Award in Awana. You don't know how much of a good Christian I am. The ones that think, I have memorized so many verses. I've been at this church since I was little. Pastor Mike knows me by name. 
I come to Compass Night. In fact, you know what? The ones that I've missed, I've watched all of them. I listen to the sermon five times during the week to make sure that I apply it extra well. I go to small group all the time. I text my small group leader and say, hey, Kellen, just letting you know I'm praying for you. You don't know how good I've, I've got it. This message isn't for me. See, there's a danger there that you're deceived into thinking you're good because you're trusting in your externals. You're trusting in everything that you're doing and not in what Christ has done for you. And you're still on the broad path that leads to destruction. In just a few verses, he's going to say this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. That's a pretty good external resume, is it not? I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I worked miracles in your name. Let me in. But he's going to say what? He's going to say, depart from me. Why? I never knew you. See, salvation is not by proximity alone or closeness alone but by grace through faith alone. You may be on that party bus heading towards that cliff, looking out the window going, wow, look at how awesome the narrow path is. It's so great that I'm on the narrow path, totally oblivious that you are careening towards the same cliff that everybody else on that bus is going towards. So I want to encourage you and challenge you and call you to examine yourself tonight. Take a diagnosis tonight of your life Where are you? What path are you on right now? Jesus is calling for the verdict in your life tonight. Are you entering by the narrow gate or are you entering by the wide gate that leads to destruction? Are you heading for that cliff or are you on the narrow gate pleading with people to get off that bus as fast as they can? Many times in his word, God has called on people to make a decision. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and he has Israel in the wilderness Verses 19 through 20. And he says, I'm setting before you life and death. And he says to Israel, choose life. Later on, when they're in the promised land in Joshua chapter 24, verses 13 through 15, Joshua is calling on the people to choose between the idol worship of the the people of the land and serving God. He says, who are you going to serve? Choose this day whom you will serve. And then there's the scene on Mount Carmel where Elijah the prophet called the people to choose between Baal and Yahweh. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to commit with? Who will you be all in with? Jeremiah 21.8, Jeremiah calls Israel again there to choose between life in following after God and death in refusing to repent and refusing to turn and follow Christ. And then you have John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69, after Jesus has been teaching and saying some pretty difficult things, it says there that many left him, and he turns to his disciples, and he looks at them, and he says, are you going to leave me as well? Again, calling on them. Choose today what you're going to do. And so it should be no surprise to us when we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is issuing another call for us to choose. And the call is on you tonight, life or death, the narrow, the wide. Enter by the narrow gate 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, but it leads to life. It leads to life. In that broad path, that wide gate, it may look good right now, but that leads to destruction. Let's pray together. God, I pray that the the students that are gathered here this evening, those that are here tonight, would be confident and sure tonight before they leave that they are on the narrow path, that they have entered by the narrow gate by repenting from their sins and putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You are the one, God, who places us there, who puts us and ushers us through the narrow gate when we trust Jesus as our Savior and you plant our feet on the narrow road that leads to life. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us in this room would leave tonight knowing for sure that our feet are on that narrow road, that we have truly put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. God, I pray that anyone who's here tonight who has made that decision and yet they're looking longingly back at the the broad path and and maybe they're drifting and they've got a a foot over there again, wanting to experience some of the things that the world has has held out to them. Lord, I pray that tonight would be a wake-up call that you by your Holy Spirit would press in on them tonight and convict them that that is not the right thing to do, that that is the path that leads to destruction and that they would be quick to repent from their sinful activities, ways, thoughts, desires, and to return in faithful obedience to the narrow road that leads to life. And God, I pray for those that are here tonight, those that are walking and running their race well, that they are firmly on the narrow path and they are thriving in their relationship with Jesus Christ. I thank you for that. I praise you for that. I pray that they would persevere. I pray that tonight would be a rallying call to them to make sure that they are shoring up their defenses, to make sure that their gaze is fixed squarely ahead at where this narrow road leads, which is to life with Christ. Lord, that is where we long to be, is with you. In the meantime, God, may we be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.